Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. So, this week, we're talking about the spring equinox, and all of the things that go along with spring happening. Yay! <laughs> I'm really good at this. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Woo! Sonia's gonna take this one away. <laughs> Sonia's gonna take this one away from for us, talk about the classical world, and how people in classical Europe mm-hmm. thought about spring. Yeah. And... This particular day, specifically. Exactly. So, the vernal equinox, also called the spring equinox, occurs on March 20th or 21st. And it signals the start of spring in the northern hemisphere. Uh, Obviously, in the southern hemisphere, it's reversed, and this is the start of fall. But if you're listening to us from the southern hemisphere, welcome. Uh, Backtrack, (laughs) we already did the fall equinox. We are... Ready to go. (laughs) Okay, so basically, Earth tilts at an angle of 23.5 degrees in its orbit, Um, but at Mm -hmm. the equinox, both spring and fall, occurs at the moment when the Earth actually is not tilting toward or away from the sun. So if you're standing right at the equator and you look overhead, you would see that the sun is directly overhead of you. And the equinox is a time of year, there's just two of them, the spring and the fall, where it is, um, like, the sun rises exactly due east, and it sets due west, and the, like, amount of daylight and night, like, the the, um, the time of daylight and darkness is equal. So, that's pretty much what this means. Hence the... Exactly. So, you know, (laughs) um, there's associations on the equinox with balance, with a return to, you know, a more more balanced situation rather than the extremes of the solstices. And traditionally, this was the time when people would, you know, basically celebrate the return of spring because obviously... After a long, dark nights of winter, right, you finally hit the time of the year again, where the days from here on out will slowly get longer and longer, and the nights will get shorter and shorter. Um, You can grow things again, you can plant things again, everything is sort of coming back to life and renewing. And so we're going to go through today some of the traditions and practices that people did in the classical world and also um, in different places throughout the Middle Ages. We are not going to be talking about Passover or Easter in this episode. Um, They are also obviously very important spring holidays, and they are actually going to get their own episode that is coming up. So today we're focusing on, you know, the non-Abrahamic religion holidays of springtime yeah 
I am so articulate, Devin. A plus plus. We're both doing great. (laughs) On top of it. So, today we are going to start out with one of two Roman spring equinox festivals. The first one is Hilaria, which is Latin for cheerful ones. And it was a Roman festival that was celebrated on the March equinox to honor Sabelle, um, who was an Anatolian mother goddess. So she was also called the Magna Mater, the Great Mother. And the Romans essentially adopted her as a uh, very important goddess and a kind of basically a huge cult following formed around her after the Sibylline yeah. Oracle in 205 BC recommended that the Romans take her on as a religious ally because at that point Rome was in their second war against Carthage so this is happening in 218 to 201 BC uh, so essentially what happens is the oracle tells them listen you gotta get Cybele on your side she is going to help yeah. you if you worship her if you put up statues she will make sure you win this war and lo and behold they win their second war against Carthage. So the Great Mother becomes extremely important. Um, and then, of course, as Rome you know, expands throughout the Mediterranean, this Great Mother figure you know, spreads throughout the Mediterranean regions, right? So it's yeah. basically where the Roman Empire went, so did Cybele. And there were basically temples and worshippers devoted to her throughout the empire. The worship of the Great Mother also included the worship of a figure called Attis, and they were always celebrated together on the return of the spring season. So basically there is the tale that Attis was a beautiful youth. Okay, so there are... <laughs> a bunch of different sources and myths around this, but essentially, Addis is a beautiful youth who basically gets struck into a frenzy and he castrates himself and dies. And Cybele, Cybele was in love with him and he was her consort. So she asks. Zeus, um, basically to make sure that the body of Attis never decays or goes to waste because he's just so beautiful that he should be preserved. There are a lot of different versions of this myth, but all of them involve self-castration of Attis the youth. And he was basically this sort of proto like resurrection myth, right? Right. Um, because he's he goes from being this like youthful god of vegetation and you know youthful joy and happiness but then turns to self-mutilation death but then kind of comes back because of the way that his body is being preserved by Zeus um so there's this idea of the symbolism that he dies but comes back again in the same way that plants of the earth, right? They die in the winter, they come back again in the spring. 
So the priests of Cybele, the Gali, would actually castrate themselves upon entering her service. And that was basically justified because the god Attis, who was her consort and lover, had himself castrated himself and then bled to death. The priests did not let themselves bleed to death, obviously. They did this they they did a much better job of self-castration. <laughs> Sorry, that just sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, a lot of old cults were like listen, there's plenty of I, I'm using the word cult because that um is the word that is yeah, used the cult of wh- whoever. Yeah, yeah, like to to be clear, I'm not talking about a cult like you know, drinking the Kool-Aid style cult. Cult as in, you know, the worship of a particular god or goddess. Yeah. And a lot of them did, you know, stuff like, stuff like this. The ancient world was a wild place. (laughs) Anyway, in honor of Addis and Sebel, on the annual festival at the Equinox, the worshippers would chop down a pine tree and bring that pine tree to the shrine where it essentially was honored as a god it was adorned with violets which as we talked about in our previous episode are some of the first flowers of spring and this was meant to symbolize Addis and how he had died but was preserved and beautified basically after his death March 24th, in particular, was the Day of Blood, which was when the high priest would take a knife and draw blood from his arms and then offer up the blood while music from cymbals and drums and flutes were playing. And then the younger, like lower down clergy would also then start whirling around through through the crowd and slashing at their own arms and also splatter their blood all over the pine tree. So that was a whole time just... Sounds hygienic. Well, you know, hygiene wasn't (laughs) super important. These were guys who had already castrated themselves, so honestly, slashing your arms while, like, (laughs) slashing your arms in a mosh pit not wild to them. They're like, yeah, this is another Tuesday. Like, this seems fine. (laughs) Um, And then the conclusions of these ceremonies would be on March 27th, roughly, which is when they would take a silver statue of the goddess and basically take her on a procession to the River Almo, which is a tributary of the Tiber River. And they would ceremoniously bathe her and, you know, basically cleanse her ritually, bring her back to the temple. And Sebel is, you know, good to go for another year. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty, pretty metal festival. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> there were also... At this time, um, it's recorded that people who weren't actually the priests could, you know, they would also take part in the celebrations, but it was more so games and wearing masks and disguises and, 
you know, having having some tomfoolery, some shenanigans. <laughs> but that's essentially how the how many Romans would have rung in the springtime. Which cool, I think cool. pretty solid choice overall. Yeah, well you know how we feel about tomfoolery oh. and shenanigans. I do love me some good tomfoolery and shenanigans, and I mean a little a little blood sacrifice, a little chopping down a pine tree. Not bad. Overall, great festival. The second love important a, hmm? a little a little blood sacrifice as a treat. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I say this as if it's, like, completely wild, but then again, I'm like, you know, if you take, like, Christianity out of context and are like, yes, <laughs> everyone involved we eat the eats the flesh and blood of their d- god, I'm like, you know, pretty fair. Pretty, you know, it's not, things haven't changed that much, I guess. Alrighty. Then, the other festival that went on around the same time was Liberalia, which would have been around March 17th. And this was the festival of Liber Pater and his consort Libera. And it's essentially a celebration of the maturation of young boys into manhood. So, you know, in the classical world, there wasn't really the idea of like adolescence as we would think about it right yeah. like there was typically a pretty stark divide there was you are a child then you go through some sort of ritual or ceremony now you are an adult and yeah this would usually take place at some point in your teen teenage years um that's not to say that there wasn't right like there was the idea of like youths <laughs> Um, you know, as in people who are adults, but who are still kind of young and young and restless, if you will. Not, not good at it yet. Yeah, they're, they're still trying, but this is basically (laughs) the festival that would celebrate young boys turning into men. Boys to men. (laughs) It's, It's a throwback. So, any Roman boy who had reached the age of about you're gonna, 15... You're gonna, what? You're gonna alienate our our Gen Z <laughs> audience. Any any of the Gen Z we've got. I assume if any... <laughs> I don't know, if any Gen Z person has found us, you know, we've, we've outed ourselves, Devin, that we are, in fact, Margot. Sorry. And old. Yeah, that we are olds. <laughs> We wear side parts and skinny jeans, you know? We are the old. I can't remember my friends' names, you know? Every other time, I'm like, it's Devin. And then I'm like, no, Margot. (laughs) (laughs) And then just empty silence. Oh, no, no. I I thought of a really dumb joke, and I'm not going to say I was like, it's Margot, like Marjorie. I can't believe it's not Devin. (laughs) <laughs> well now that you've said that on the recording i'm leaving it <laughs> oh, jesus all right leaving that solid gold content 
This is what you all came here for. <laughs> anyway, back to our uh, young young lads turning into men. Basically, they would remove their um, protective charm, which was called a bulla prex texta. If I'm mispronouncing things, I'm sorry. I'm doing my best. Which was typically well, also this culture doesn't exist anymore, so I don't think anybody's gonna get mad at you. You know, you would be surprised. I am a medievalist, and the beef between medievalists and classicists is real because medievalists tend to read and pronounce Latin like the way that, like, it's more like church Latin, whereas classicists yeah. tend to be like, no, we have to pronounce it the Roman way. Because there's, <laughs> that's an actual, actual beef I have heard. With my own two ears, I had to sit in a room while people argued about what's the correct way to pronounce a dead language. <laughs> but they they know that, like, the the people in Rome now just speak Italian, right? Devin, I... I don't <laughs> know. There aren't any Romans left. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Like, I... <laughs> I'm in the medievalist camp where I'm like, I'm going to pronounce things the way the Pope does in Latin, because I think that he's probably our best authority on what Latin sounds like. But, you know, I also, if there's any classicists who are still listening to this podcast, I don't want them to be mad at me. Meh. <laughs> I fully study modern history, so like, <laughs> so you don't like, know about the crazy. beef. You don't know all all the nonsense, Margo. You cannot imagine all what goes crazy. on behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, the discourse I've I've been privy to. Anyway, we're going back. We're talking about boys to men. They remove their. <laughs> Bula Prex Texta. It's a hollow charm that's made out of gold if you're super fancy, or leather if you are a pleb. Um, and basically, <laughs> those were charms that you would get... I'm sorry, it's just that they're literally plebs. I know they're literal <laughs> plebeians. <laughs> anyway, so this was a charm that parents would put around the neck of their child at birth. Um, and... Mm -hmm. Basically, they were meant to ward off evil spirits. So they were a protection amulet. Right. But at the Liberalia ceremony, the young men would take their bula off and place it on the altar, sometimes with a lock of their hair, or if if they could grow a beard, they would like do their first shave and leave some of the stubble on the altar as well. <laughs> And then they would dedicate that to Lares, who were the gods of the household and the family. Um, sometimes they would also give the amulet to their mother, who would keep it out of superstition to, you know, basically hold on to it and say, okay, you are no longer a child wearing this, but I will hold on to it in the hopes that it will keep protecting you, basically. Yeah. Uh, they would also discard, essentially, their childhood clothes, and they would then put on the, basically, adult 
togas. Um, so, you know, there were, they would have looked relatively similar, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's like how today, right? Like kids clothes and adults clothes. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's a difference in terms of what you're going to wear. So you would put aside your shorter alls and put on your three piece suit. (laughs) Um, And essentially, if you, especially if you were a, like in Rome, wearing the like specific toga showed you, like it identified you as a Roman citizen. So you were allowed to vote. And a big part of this celebration was also meant as basically a fertility rite. Um, so it was about, right, because this is, you know, young men who hypothetically will soon be married and be the heads of their own families. So, give me a sip. Um, yep. So essentially, what they would do, uh, particularly in Italy, but it may have also, you know, happened in other parts of the empire. They would take a large carved phallus and then carry Mm -hmm. it as a processional through the village or through the town. And people would, you know, sorry. So they would take their large carved phallus and carry it uh-huh. through the town, which was supposed to bring good luck. And then they would carry it throughout the countryside, which was supposed to bring blessings and fertility to both the land and the people. And at uh-huh. the very end of the procession, a virtuous and respected matron would have a wreath woven. And she would come over and put the wreath on top of the phallus. And that concludes the ceremony. <laughs> I'm just like I think that we should bring this back because I need an excuse to walk around the city holding a giant dildo (laughs) like no (laughs) it's to protect the land (laughs) and then we need to find a respected matron in our community who will weave us a wreath and then place it on the giant dildo and that protects our fertility that? for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we could find someone. <laughs> I want to get I I want to get the mayor. Oh, that we could we could get the mayor. You know, yeah. Let's get the mayor to weave us a a penis wreath. I'm just saying. I mean, as much as we make <laughs> jokes about this, I do have to say I, I like know. the idea of coming of age rituals. Like, I think oh, that great. that's no, really I cool. I wish we this. had them. I wish we had more <laughs> of them because, like, I don't know. I I guess the closest we really have, like, as a modern coming-of-age ritual in, like, you know, quote-unquote the West would be, like, I don't know, like, high school graduation. Yeah. Yeah, like, commencement. And I just feel like it doesn't have quite the same pizzazz as... It you know, doesn't. I leave my first shave as an offering to the gods and then parade around town with a giant dick. Like, that sounds <laughs> much more fun than sitting uh, in a hall and waiting for your name to be called and you walk across the stage and they give you the diploma and you have to shake hands and smile 
and pretend you like your principal, and then you have to walk off the stage, and that's them. Yeah, it's not. It's definitely not as fun. Anyway, we're going to go a little further north now and talk about the Diazblot, which is the Scandinavian vernal equinox celebration. So, as per usual, with our, you know, Norse slash Scandinavian rituals, there's a bit of speculation involved because they didn't have the decency to leave a lot of written records. Ah, Vikings! Great! You're too busy out (laughs) raiding, (laughs) not wearing horns on their helmets, taking too many baths, Right. Just brushing their hair too often. (laughs) Oh, that's still my... Too many baths, not enough writing. (laughs) That's right. That's still one of my favorites in probably all of the, like, historical primary sources I've read is the chronicle (laughs) where the English guy writes down that, well, these Norse guys are a real problem because... They take baths and brush their hair, and because of that, our wives simply cannot resist them. So we need to start killing these guys better, because all of our women want the Vikings instead of us. I like that that's that's a hot take. We must kill them, not maybe we should start taking baths and brushing our hair, but no, they should just die. Right, I feel like... That's like some hardcore dude thinking right there. (laughs) Right, I feel like the most obvious solution is we should all just get super cool looking. We should all start, like, (laughs) combing our hair, putting little braids and beads in it, maybe bathe once in a while. (laughs) Anyway, so basically the (laughs) block topic. Yes, back to topic. We're getting very off topic today, but you know what? I feel like that's that's about par for the course with the types of holidays we're talking about today, where it's a, a bit of chaos everywhere. Yeah. So anyway, some in... <laughs> some shenanigans. <laughs> so a blot was basically any sacrificial holiday, and the desir were like female... Um, spirits, essentially. So, therefore, Diaz Blot is a sacrificial holiday honoring female spirits and deities. So, there is some evidence that this was going on from prehistoric times right up until the Christianization of Scandinavia. Um, It's mentioned in the Hervarar saga, the Egils saga, and the Heimskringla Uh, Again, I can't pronounce anything. Any of our Scandinavian listeners, please don't be too disappointed in me. Fun fact, this celebration still lives on in a form at an annual fair called the Disting in Uppsala, Sweden. But essentially what it seems... Oh man, I wish we could go to Uppsala. COVID. COVID! In any case, there was... Essentially, it seems like this festival might have moved around in terms of the specific day, but Mm -hmm. there are both mentions of it going on at the end of winter or at 
like the beginning of spring. So it's around, likely was held around the spring equinox. And okay. it was a time to honor the female spirits and deities called Desir. Uh, it seems like it might have also been a time to honor Valkyries, which are kind of their own separate yeah. being. Um, from the name of the festival, we can understand that this was probably some kind of ritualized sacrifice. So in line with other you know, Norse pagan traditions, there likely would have been sacrifices of animals, which after which you would hold a banquet and then eat the sacrificed animal, probably have some meat, some mead, some ale. A good time was had by all. And it seems like it may have also, um, in some accounts, been about honoring female ancestors as well. So it's very much a spring, like, renewal holiday, but with a focus on women and the role of women yeah. in society. So, again, we don't know too much about this. it, but I think, you know, it's kind of a nice... A nice contrast to what we were just talking about as, you know, <laughs> liberalia is about, you know, the maturation yeah. of boys growing up, putting aside childhood and becoming men, versus Disablot seems to have been about focusing on the role of women, both in terms of ancestors and in terms of spirits and deities, and, you know, kind of their roles in in Norse society. Right. And last, but certainly not least, we're going to head over to Eastern Europe to talk about the drowning of Morzana and Lieldianas, which is from Latvia. So we're going to start with the drowning of Morzana, or Marzana, depending on... Where exactly you're from, Eastern Europe has uh, enough dialects that, you know, names get a little switched up sometimes. So essentially, Marzana is the goddess of death in the Slavic pagan pantheon. Um, and essentially, what you would do in early spring, they would build an effigy of Marzana. She would be made out of mm -hmm. straw and then wrapped in white cloth. Okay. And then she would be decorated with ribbons and with necklaces. Then you would take this effigy and you would have to carry her past every single house in the village by a group of children. So the kids are responsible for carrying around the goddess of death. During this okay. procession, Marzana would have to be dripped in, would have to be, sorry, dipped in every puddle or stream that they encountered along the way through their procession. Then in the evening, the children would hand over the effigy to the young adults. So, again, like we talked okay. about, the youths. <laughs> Those youths. Then they would light juniper twigs, which would illuminate the effigy as they carried her out of the village. They would walk over to the nearest large body of water, so whether that's a pond or a lake or a river, and then they would throw her into the water and let her um, spirit, drown. like, ritually drown. 
Um, there were a bunch of different superstitions related to this custom. So once it's been in the water, you aren't supposed to touch her again, because otherwise your hands will wither up. Oh. Also, you have to throw her in the water, turn around, and walk home. You cannot turn back to look at her again, because if you look back while turning home, you are going to catch an illness or someone in your family will get ill. You also have to make sure that you are walking very steadily, because if you trip or stumble or fall, that indicates that someone in your family will die within the coming year. Oh, jeez. So this is very serious business, you know? You have to show Marzana the proper respect, and even once you've drowned her, you know, don't mess with her. You don't mess with the god of death around here. Oh, no. Now, there were attempts. This is obviously a pagan custom, but it kept up even after Christianization because, you know, as we've talked about before, right, rituals and the meaning of switch. Yeah, and, and even then, like, rituals and the meaning of rituals and how people think of them change over time. Like, even within, even before christianization right like different groups of people um throughout say you know if we're looking at europe different pagan groups did interact with each other and they also would have changed ideas and there's clearly borrowing ideas from each other so you know it there is no such thing as like a pure ritual or like yeah you know there's static yeah exactly that's the word i'm looking for like it's not this like frozen in time nothing has ever changed situation right but you know most of eastern europe was christianized around you know in the in the mid to late middle ages um and the catholic church really couldn't do too much about it because you know they were in italy (laughs) the slavs are all the way over there (laughs) <laughs> it's it's kind of hard. I mean, to this day, you can't really get the, get them to listen to anything. <laughs> the Ukraine Ukrainian Catholics still have married priests because, uh, to my understanding, you know, the Vatican sent a memo and said, "Hey, priests aren't allowed to get married anymore," and then they threw it in the garbage and said, "We didn't get that. <laughs> what are you talking about?" <laughs> totally keeping married priests. But anyway, the Catholic Church did make an attempt to forbid this old custom in the 1400s because, you know, they kind of caught on to it and thought maybe we should put a stop to this. So right. at 1420, or 1420, <laughs> got <Blaze>. him, <laughs> blaze it. <laughs> At the Synod of Poznan, uh, basically the Polish clergy were instructed to, quote, do not allow the superstitious Sunday custom, do not permit them to carry around the effigy they call death and drown in puddles. Uh, However, (laughs) obviously that didn't work because that custom continues to this day. Um, Around the... 18th century, there was another attempt um, because they tried to swap it out and say, well, instead of having the goddess of death, Marzana, 
we will instead make an effigy of Judas, and we're going to hang him from the church tower. Um, which also failed because, you know, that's not quite as dramatic as drowning yeah. death herself in the water. <laughs> um, so to this day, it is still a practice that is carried out in many places to, you know, essentially drive out death and winter and the cold and the darkness, drown all that and welcome in warmth and light and springtime. I really like this one. I think we should start doing that more than the more than the penis one. I mean, I think we could easily, you know, do 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 it like they did for Hilaria, which is this was a multi-day festival, right? So we could have yeah, dildo day, death day, <laughs> maybe chop down a pine tree and offer up your blood to it day. Blood for the blood god. That's right. <laughs> you need a lot of blood if you're the blood god yeah you don't get that title for nothing that's right get that title because you have the most blood <laughs> and now we're going to move over to Latvia where again Latvia. Latvian viewers if I am mispronouncing also don't come for me um there is a celebration called Rieldenas, which in English would translate to the Great Day. Um, nowadays, it Sounds is good. celebrated on Easter. And okay. yeah, fun fact, in a lot of um, like Slavic languages, Easter is just called the Great Day. Um, oh. You know? So like, I don't know, in Ukrainian, it's called Velikidain. Which literally translates to big day. <laughs> um, Ooh, but big yeah, day. now that it's been, you know, it, it has been associated with Easter, but it this is one of those that, um, again, a lot of the rituals and traditions associated with it do predate Christian conversion and still would have originally been celebrated around the vernal equinox. Right. Um, so we're going to look at it from the, you know, pagan perspective. And we'll leave all, again, we're going to talk about Easter and Passover next time. Right. Well, Passover first, because Passover is obviously much older, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so it seems like in here, the sun plays a big role in the Latvian Great Day. Because everyone is celebrating, essentially, the return of the sun. The days get longer, it's warmer, it's brighter, and basically the sun is being victorious over the cold and the dark. Whoa, so traditionally, you eat a bunch of round foods on that day to symbolize the sun. So you uh -huh. bake breads and sweets into circles, um, puddings and head cheese are made into round molds, and eggs are eaten because, again, both symbolize springtime and they're yep. round like the sun. Round. <laughs> and their insides are yellow. Yeah, exactly. Their insides are yellow. And it's also very common um, to, I mean, and again, this happens throughout Eastern Europe, is boiling eggs or dyeing them in, you know, onion skins and... Yeah. You know, different um, different vegetation, cabbage, 
barks, mosses. So you get a bunch of different kind of natural dyes um, when you're eating yeah. the eggs. Um, and before you eat the egg, again, this is common throughout a lot of Eastern Europe, um, you would find another person and you have to hit the eggs together. So each person has an egg and you boop them together. And whosoever uh-huh. egg breaks has to give it to the other person. <laughs> and basically, whoever has the unbroken egg gets to keep playing and you boop your eggs against each other. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's basically like a... It, it's egg march madness, essentially. Um, and you yeah. end up with one final winner. One egg to <laughs> rule them all. And that person wins. And then, you know, you what share around the eggs because nobody wants to eat all two dozen eggs. Yeah. That's well, a lot you, of eggs. What do you win? Yeah, you win the eggs. Okay. Yeah, you, you win the eggs, but, like, you're probably realistically going to share them around because... Yeah. You know, whoever's the big winner, that's too much eggs. I guess you can eat the broken eggs, but whichever egg you break, you get to eat, I guess. Uh, The other thing is there was also... um, Pussy willows are a very uh, big part of the celebrations because, again, they're one of the first things to kind of bloom in the springtime. Um, And even... Today, they are typically used in a lot of Eastern Europe um, rather than palm leaves for Palm Sunday because, you know... There are palms? Yeah, it was kind of hard to get palm leaves back in the day. (laughs) And basically what you would do on the spring equinox is take your pussy willows and kind of, like, playfully, like, hit people with them. Um, you know, so it's not like an actual yeah. like attack. It's more like a gentle tapping. Um, uh-huh. but they're supposed to, you know, bring health and happiness and vigor for the Aww. coming year. That's cute. Yeah. And on the day of for the great day, you are supposed to wake up before dawn and go down to your closest area that has clean running water. Not still water, but it has to be running, so like a stream or a spring. Mm -hmm. And you have to go out there and wash your face with the really, really cold running water. Because the water is supposed to have special healing qualities on the morning of Liedelmas. Liedelmas. Um, And it's supposed to say that if you wash your face with it before the sun rises Mm -hmm. and then watch the sunrise, that will protect you from illness for the rest of the year and also give you, you know, again, like vigor and health and energy. Yeah. I support that. Yeah. Then on the way back. Health and vigor. Yeah. We need to find the nearest source of uh, running water that's clean enough that I'd want to wash my face in it and then go for it. Yeah, I really don't want to put my face in the St. Lawrence. Yeah, that's probably not the best idea. <laughs> anyway, there is It'll still more. It'll definitely be cold, though. <laughs> still more. What's more? There's still more, because on your way home from washing your face, you have to make a bunch of noise and yell and scream and chase away all the birds. Because apparently... Birds are bringers of illness and misfortune and bad luck. So you have yeah, to chase away I all the birds. That. Right? 
I think most birds are not great. And yeah. I don't trust a bird. I don't know. I like the little wee ones, but otherwise, get off my lawn. Pigeons looking at you. Yeah, I don't I don't trust a pigeon. And I, this is oh. I'm more on board with the birds that eat other birds. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and basically to finish off Lia Dielnas, um, there is also the kind of final big tradition for that day is setting up a swing, like a you know, like what you would swing on as a kid, basically. Um, so you would set it up and it's typically made out of... Right, so basically these are big wooden swings that are set up and usually the seat of it is wide enough that at least two people can sit on it. Um, and everybody in the village is supposed to take a turn, even if it's just a few swings back and forth. Again, because it's supposed to bring good luck and health Right. You know, for the coming year. It was also uh, a fun chance, you know, for young couples to maybe flirt. Yeah. Get a little a little cozy together on the swing. Uh-huh. And this swinging can last for one week. They will keep it up. But after mm-hmm. one week has passed, you have to burn all the swings. Because <laughs> otherwise the witches will show up to swing from them instead. Oh, no. You don't want the witches, so you can set up the swing, but then you have to burn it. Okay. Yeah, you don't want witches on your swings. Especially not if that provides good health. That's what I'm saying. You don't don't want want witches coming to your village. That's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. So that's basically my historical analysis, my historical discussion of the spring equinox. There is, you know, now the kind of modern iteration that a lot of, you know, people who follow Wicca or other forms of paganism would celebrate is Ostara, which is a reconstruction made by the linguist Jacob Grimm um, from an old high German form of the goddess Ostara. And basically, there are also a lot of these same traditions that get kind of folded into it, right? So the baking of round breads, the eating of eggs, um, you know, bringing inside or, you know, different flowers and greenery and welcoming basically the return of springtime. I hope that this episode has given you some ideas for what you can do to celebrate the return of spring. Yeah. You know. I mean, for me personally, it definitely has. Because I'm very excited. Because when spring comes, that means I can leave this apartment. That's going to be incredible. It'll be warm enough to be in the sunshine. Can you imagine life outside your apartment? Not really. Not anymore. (laughs) It's been so long. I am clinging to sanity by my fingernails. Yeah, pretty much. And yet we persist! (laughs) (sighs) There may come a day when we can no longer do this podcast. 
but it is not this day. <laughs> A day when we forsake all of our history and folklore knowledge. <laughs> but it is not this day. We turn our backs on sanity. <laughs> well... <sighs> Thank you once again for turning into the Madness Podcast. <laughs> yeah. We've been doing our best to get these out, keep up some quality content creation. Next week we have a special, extra special episode because it's our channel trailer for season two. Ba -ba -ba -ba. That's right, Baba Yaga's getting a season two. <laughs> Approved by me and Margot, because it's just the two of us. We didn't have to ask anyone else, but we decided. So <laughs> Season two. So watch out for that. Season We're going to have a bunch of fun, fun stuff for next week. Yep. Got some brand new fun facts. And as always, yeah. thank you for coming by. Yeah. Remember to uh, support us on the Patreons and follow us on all the social medias. And leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really helps get us, you know, into the algorithm for other people to also come see us. And we also really, really want to hear what you guys have to think about us. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week! Bye.